Welcome to Journey in the Word with Pastor Randy Mosher of Calvary Chapel of the Cumberland Valley. We are located in Hagerstown, Maryland. Please join us every weekday as our pastor takes us verse by verse through a book of the Bible. Today, we're beginning in chapter 11 of Revelation, where we begin to dig in with the two witnesses, their role, and the importance of the Holy Spirit in our lives. So if you're able, grab your Bibles and join us as we continue our journey in the Word. Revelation chapter 11. Revelation in chapter 11 this morning, as we begin looking at this, we're dealing with the uh, the two witnesses. And really, last week we began this by talking about the temple that I believe that John has made clear is coming. It's going to be built again, and uh, the implications of that and what that means for the last days. But this morning we're going to get a little bit deeper into this as we begin moving through this passage. Let me, let's begin in verse 1. Revelation 11 and verse 1. Then I was given a reed like a measuring rod, and the angel stood saying, Rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. But leave out the court which is outside the temple, and do not measure it, for it has been given to the Gentiles, and they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months. And I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy 1,260 days closed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the, before the God of the earth. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. And if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. These have power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. And they have power over waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire when they finish their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them, overcoming them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom in Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. And those from the peoples, tribes, tongues, and nations will see their dead bodies three and a half days and not allow their dead bodies to be put into graves. Those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them, make merry, and send gifts to one another because the two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. After the three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. They heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they ascended to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies saw them. In the same hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell in the earthquake. Seven thousand people were killed, and the rest were afraid and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. So here as we looked last week, we saw John being given this, this reed like a measuring rod and the angel tell him to rise up and measure the temple of God and the altar and those, those who worship there. And clearly we know what he's, he's to do is to lay out a blueprint of, of what God is going to do in, in the restructuring, the rebuilding of this temple. And he's told to leave out that court as he lays these plans, to leave out the court outside the temple, which would be the court of the Gentiles. And, and, and we talk last week about how the temple, when, when Antichrist comes, I believe that the Antichrist will be the one who enables the Jews to rebuild this temple. 
And how, as we look at today's environment, we say, well, that couldn't happen because, you know, we have the Dome of the Rock and everything else that sits up there that has to do with the Muslim holy sites. And I gave you some ideas and just some thoughts as to how that could occur even with those things existing there. But this morning, we're going to turn and we're going to begin looking at verse 3 as now we begin to be introduced to these two witnesses. And he says in verse 3, as we look at this, that that God is going to raise these men up. And here's what he says, and I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. Hmm. John was told that the city is going to be trampled underfoot by these evil peoples for 42 months or three and a half years. He's now being told that there will also be two witnesses that God will be raising up in the midst of this event who will be prophesying truth during the same time period. 1,260 days based on the Jewish calendar of John's day would have equaled three and a half years. So they will have a three and a half year ministry of prophecy, if you will. And I know there are lots of questions about the identity of these, these two witnesses, who they are. We all have our ideas. But before we get to that, let, let's talk about some other things. Like, why are, these two, why are there two of them, not only one? You know, why is God raising up in twos? It's because Scripture tells us that this is the minimum number that's needed for a witness to to be established. Uh, If a witness was called forth to establish some truth or to make a valid testimony against someone or something, there needed to be at least two or possibly three. Here's what it says in Deuteronomy 19.15 under the law. It says this, Deuteronomy 19.15, One witness shall not rise against a man concerning any iniquity or any sin that he commits. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, the matters shall be established. Deuteronomy 17.6, Deuteronomy 17.6, Whoever is deserving of death shall be put to death on the testimony of two or three witnesses. He shall not be put to death on the testimony of one witness. Matthew 18.16, Matthew 18.16, but if he will not hear, take, you, take with you one or two more that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. So Jesus is even repeating that requirement from the law. And he's doing this as we address someone who sins against us. In John chapter 8, beginning in verse 14, John 8, beginning in verse 14, Jesus answered and said to them, even if I bear witness of myself, my witness is true, for I know where I came from and where I am going, but you do not know where I come from and where I am going. You judge according to the flesh, I judge no one, and yet if I do judge, my judgment is true, for I am not alone, but I am with the Father who sent me. It is also written in your law that the testimony of two men is true. I am one who bears witness of myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness of me. And so Jesus, again, makes this establishment that comes from the Old Testament law and applies it even to his own life and his own witness. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 1, 2 Corinthians 13 and verse 1, Paul says, This will be the third time I am coming to you by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word shall be established. So throughout the scriptures, we find this biblical principle of twos being employed, and God sends his messengers in twos. I mean, if you look back, what did Joshua do when he sent the spies into the land, right? He, he sent two spies in initially to scope out the land of Israel. Now, I know the others went, but he sent two in initially. And then there were two angels testifying at the tomb on Easter morning, and Jesus sent out his disciples in pairs of what? Twos. 
Two by two, he sent him out. And so now here in this tumultuous days in the future that are coming, that John's describing to us, that the angel's revealing to him, that God's revealing to, to John, God says that he'll again be sending out two witnesses who will be testifying truth of him in a world where lies will abound. And in addition to this, know some other important characteristics that were given about these guys. Look at verse 3 and 4 again. He says, And I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in a sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. And so here, what he says now, as we look at this, we see some other characteristics, uh, a number of them, in fact. Here's what he begins with. He says in verse 3, we're told that they'll be witnessing, not by their own power or will, but with the power given to them by who? By God himself. They're going to be operating under the power of God. Now, that's an essential aspect of their ministry, especially considering the environment that they're going to be ministering in. In Walvard's commentary, he says, such power, in fact, that they are able to witness for 1,260 days in spite of the antagonism of the world that will develop towards them. If you think it's hard to witness for Jesus in this day and age, just imagine what it's going to be like for these guys in that evil day. You know, people sometimes are afraid to go out and share the gospel because of the reaction they'll get. Their friends might disown them, might not want to talk to them anymore. They might lose their job. Lots of things could happen to them. But in that day, when these two guys are there, this is going to be a completely godless place. This world will be a completely godless place. Think about it. The world will be under the rule of a guy who will literally be possessed and energized by Satan himself. And both the people of the physical world and the demonic hosts in the spiritual world will be following him and supporting him. So just imagine the demonic hostility that these two witnesses are going to face when they stand up. But it won't matter. It won't matter. Because we're told here that they'll be given power by God, that, that they'll need to be effective witnesses for him in the midst of this hostile environment that they'll be called to serve in. These guys will be spirit-led, spirit-filled, spirit-energized servants of God. And even though these guys will be the ones that will be at work serving the Lord as witnesses, it will all be the result of the Spirit's power at work in their lives that'll be enabling them to do what it is that they'll be doing. No, even though their ministry is a special ministry, don't miss the fact that the same spiritual resources that God will equip them with is the same resource that he's made available to you and me today so that we can effectively serve him and be witnesses for him. It's a resource that we need if we're going to fulfill our callings in Christ. Even though our ministry calling might not be the same in terms of being on par with these guys and what they're going to be doing, we still have a calling to serve God in our world today. And I believe that that calling is getting stronger to us. The darker this world gets, may I encourage you, the darker that this world gets, now is the time to know your calling in Christ. He didn't place you here to go along for the ride. He put you here for such a time as this. I use that phrase often, but it's absolutely true. He has caused us to be born in this time, in this generation, knowing full well that you would be living during this time. And if you're in him, he has a calling for you to be his witness in the midst of darkness. And like these guys, we're sometimes going to find ourselves facing some serious resistance as we go about doing that. And sometimes even open hostility for the message that we're called to bring to people. But like these guys, God wants to empower us. He wants to empower you to fulfill that calling, even in the face of that resistance and the difficulties that you might have to contend with 
as you faithfully step out and do the calling that he's placed upon you. I personally believe that all of this is connected to the command and and the promise that Jesus Jesus gave to his disciples in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, a promise that hasn't changed nor will it ever change. It says this in Acts 1.8, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my crazy people dancing in the aisles. No. You shall be my witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. You know, as believers, this this isn't just for the first century church. This isn't just for the initial disciples. This is for you and me. This is for you and me. As believers, we've been promised power, supernatural power, so that we can fulfill the command that Jesus has given for us to go and fulfill for him, to be witnesses for him in this world. And just like these believers of the first century, and just like these two end-time witnesses, we have the same charge, and we have the same power. And this means that even though this charge might always not seem easy for us to go and to do, and, and even though we might face hostility for going and doing it, he is offering to us the power that we need so that we can be his witnesses. And like these two witnesses, we don't need to be afraid. And we're not going to find any fear in these guys. We don't need to be afraid because he'll empower us just like he's empowering them to accomplish the work that he has for us to accomplish. And in that empowerment, there is nothing, and I mean absolutely nothing, that anyone can do to us until that mission is fulfilled and accomplished. This is so important for us to get. I really believe that because there are too many of us who, instead of going boldly out like we're going to see these two witnesses doing, we're timid and we're afraid and, and we're, we're hesitant. And it's all because I believe that we don't understand. I, I believe we, we don't understand the empowerment that we've been given to do what it is that God has asked us to do. And these men will one day come boldly and they're going to witness for God despite all of the terrible conditions that they're going to face in the world in which they will live. But they're going to be able to go boldly because they understand the empowerment that God has given to them. And so can you and I. So can you and I. You know, I have to tell you honestly, the, the, the older I'm getting, the bolder I'm getting in my faith. The less afraid I am to speak out. And it's not just because what I got to lose. It's got nothing to do with it. I'm going to die in a few years anyways. You know, what is it going to happen if somebody kills me sooner? It's not that. It's not that. It's because the longer I'm walking with the Lord, the more I'm realizing what he's done within me and the power he's placed within me so that I can be a witness for him. Secondly, note this, verse 3. We're told that their ministry will be a prophetic ministry. It says they're going to prophesy. Now, in other words, they're going to be calling the world to repentance by telling the world things to come. Now, again, I believe that this is a ministry that's also been given to us as well. Sometimes our witness is to simply testify of what Jesus has done in our lives, but at other times we're called to be prophets of God, sharing with people the things that Scripture clearly tells us is coming. This is one of the reasons why I am so adamant about teaching you guys about the prophetic things in Scripture and not ignoring these things. I know that as you begin to absorb these things, you're being equipped so that the Holy Spirit can use you to speak to others about these real and coming future events that God has so clearly told us in his word will come. 
I am fully aware that there are Christians who really don't like studying this stuff. They, they feel like it's a waste of time. They, they feel like there's more practical books of the Bible that they can devote themselves to. I think I shared this with you, but the first time I taught the book of Revelation, we were fairly young here as a fellowship. And, and I remember I used to say, hey, I'm thinking about, you know, I tell folks I'm thinking about teaching this. And I had a couple of people came up to me and, and nobody here, just so you know that, but came to me and said, well, you know, pastor, I, you know, there's more practical things we could be looking at right now. What's more practical than this? What's more practical than the understanding of how God is going to finish the work of redemption in this world? And where we may very well be in relation to that fulfillment so that God can work within us in this. You see, I know as I look at my Bible, as you should as well, that over one third of the Bible, really the exact figure is about 33% of your Bibles are composed of scriptures that deal with the prophetic. There is a reason for this. There's a reason that this is the case. It's because God uses the prophetic as a witness of himself. Just as God declares in, in, in Isaiah chapter 46, verses 9 through 10. Isaiah 46, verse 9. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Now listen to this. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient time things that are not yet done. Saying, my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. God says, man, I know the beginning and I know the end. And I've told you some of the things at the end. I put them in my word so that you'll see them, so that you'll share them, so that you'll be aware and you'll realize that one by one as I fulfill these things. And by the way, we could go back and look at what is it? The 600 plus prophecies concerning Jesus himself that were fulfilled by Jesus. Prophecies contained in the scriptures that were fulfilled, not just kind of, but like in exacting nature, completely fulfilled. There is nothing that's more powerful than understanding that. Now, look, I'm not saying that we should take what we're looking at here in Revelation and begin all sorts of speculations and then consider that to be prophecy to other people. As I said to you before, the speculations are fun, but we need to stay as we talk with people with what we know. And we can speculate in that by saying, this is just my thoughts on it. But here's what the word does say. These things are going to come to pass. And by the way, you can look at the biblical record of the prophecies that God has already fulfilled to know that he knows what's coming in the future. I'm just telling you, there's nothing that speaks to people of God's reality like the prophetic scriptures do. It's amazing to me if we take a Wednesday night, and this is certainly not a slap. Please don't take it that way. But you know, Wednesday nights are always a small number of people in any church. It's just the way it is. People are busy, you got work and everything else. But I'll tell you what, if I put on a video or something that has to do with prophecy, you guys fill this place out. And it's amazing faces. We see people who don't even come here will show up if we make it known that we're going to do something on prophecy. People show up. People are fascinated by prophecy. Now that's a problem. We don't want just prophecy to be something that people are fascinated with. And it doesn't need to be just something that people are fascinated with. But we can use prophecy to speak truth into the lives of people about Jesus, about what he's done, and about God's plan of redemption from beginning to end. I am a firm believer that that's why we need to teach the whole counsel of God's word from Genesis to Revelation and not leave things out in between, not leaving out segments that we don't fully grasp, appreciate, or feel comfortable teaching or studying, but that we need to look at it all because it's all speaking of his plan of redemption. And just as I said, when we began the book of Revelation, this is a book of judgment. And yet at the same time, it's a book that shows us 
how God is finishing that work of redemption that he began at Calvary, that he began in the garden back in Genesis. Amen. Are you tracking with me on this? There's nothing. Because as people begin to see the intricacy of the, of the, the specific things that God has declared about the past, the present, and the future, things which in a lot of cases have already been fulfilled in these exacting details, God re, God's reality becomes hard to refute. And as you begin to spend time looking into these passages that deal with prophecy, you're storing up things that the Holy Spirit can then use in order to speak prophetically through you to those that you are called to witness to. Never underestimate the significance or the importance or the relevance of the prophetic scriptures and never underplay your responsibility to be a prophet of God as he will use you to share these amazing truths with people. Amen? Third, note this. Verse 3, the implication is that they'll also be preaching and demonstrating repentance. They'll be preaching and demonstrating repentance. He describes them as being clothed in sackcloth, clothed in sackcloth. In the Old Testament, when we look at the Old Testament, we find that sackcloth is always connected with repentance. The Old Testament saints, they wore sackcloth in times when they were repenting and interceding on behalf of themselves or on behalf of people. And so here, when these two guys come, we're going to find that they're going to come in sackcloth, not only preaching repentance, but reflecting a posture of repentance in their own lives as well by their dress, by their demeanor. They're going to be symbolically reflecting how they are joining themselves with the world in the need for repentance. It's interesting how we have a tendency to be quick to call others to repentance, but neglect the need of repentance in our own lives. You know, it's much easier to, as Jesus would say, to see the log in your brother's, or the speck in your brother's eyes and ignore the log in our own, you know? And yet we find in the Bible that some of the greatest prayers that were ever prayed some of the greatest prayers that were ever prayed were dealing with repentance and the need for forgiveness were prayed by people who recognized their own guilt and their own need for these things. People who personally identified themselves with the very people they were praying for, even though they themselves, from all outward appearance, were living very righteous lives. Think about Daniel's prayer in Daniel chapter 9. I love this one because in this prayer, Daniel, he prays, he's been studying the scriptures and, and he began seeing and recognizing that things were about to come to pass in the lives of God's people of his day. Listen to the tenor and, and, and tone of his prayer. You can write down the passage. I just want to read it to you this morning. I want you to listen to what he says. Pick up on these things where he identifies with the very things that he's praying for. Daniel chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of the lineage of the Medes, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by the books the number of the years specified by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. Then I set my face toward the Lord God to make requests by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes, and I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession and said, O oh Lord, great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant and mercy with those who love him and with those who keep his commandments, we have sinned and committed iniquity. We have done wickedly and rebelled, even by departing from your precepts and your judgments. Neither have we heeded your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings and our princes, to our fathers and all the people of the land. O oh Lord, righteousness belongs to you, but to us 
shame of face as it is this day. To the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all Israel, those near and those far off and all the countries to which you have driven them because of the unfaithfulness which they have committed against you. O Lord, to us belong shame of face. To our kings, our princes, and our fathers because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness though we have rebelled against him. We have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in his laws which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. Yes, all Israel has transgressed your law and has departed so as not to obey your voice. Therefore, the curse and the oath written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out on us because we have sinned against him. And he has confirmed his words, which he spoke against us and against our judges who judged us by bringing upon us a great disaster for under the whole heaven such as never been done as what has been done to Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come upon us. Yet we have not made our prayer before the Lord our God, that we might turn from our iniquities and and understand your truth. Therefore, the Lord has kept the disaster in mind and brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works which he does, though we have not obeyed his voice. And now, Lord our God, who brought you your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and made yourself a name as it is this day, we have sinned, we have done wickedly. O Lord, according to all your righteousness, I pray, let your anger and your fury be turned away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy mountain, because our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, the, the, the prayer of your servant and his supplications, and for the Lord's sake, cause your face to shine on your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations in the city, which is called by your name, for we do not present our supplications before you because of our righteous deeds, but because of your great mercies. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, listen and act. Do not delay for your own sake, my God, for your city and your people are called by your name. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Journey in the Word, a verse-by-verse teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel of the Cumberland Valley. If you would like to listen to more teachings or find out more information about us, go to www.journeyintheword.org. That's www.journeyintheword.org. Thanks again for listening. We hope you'll tune in for our next episode as we continue our Journey in the Word.